0: Remember that last line. We're going to actually be talking a little bit about that later uh, in the message. But uh, uh, let's see. What does that? Not one of all the chosen race but shall to heaven attain. Here they will share abounding grace and there with Jesus reign. Hmm. We're going to be talking about the, the role of the saints, the role of God's people in the victory of the kingdom of God. Let's, uh, before we get into that, let's read our sermon text this evening and ask the Lord for the blessing of illuminating our minds, giving us understanding and light. Turn to Psalm 149. Psalm 149 is our scripture text. We're dealing with those psalms that begin and end with praise the Lord, or in Hebrew, hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what it is in Hebrew. How many even knew that that, that was a Hebrew word? It's also a Greek word. There are, cer- there are certain words that, that seem to be universal. Amen is another one. It's the same in Hebrew or Greek. I think in the Greek text that took over the Hebrew word and just rewrote it in Greek, we say the same thing in English. Every, every language uses, uses that, that word, interestingly. Kind of a, be an interesting historical study to see how that developed and why that is. Uh, but in Hallelujah Psalms, praise the Lord begins and ends the Psalms. These Psalms are called Hallel Psalms because they are praise songs. Psalm 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song; his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his Maker; let his children, uh, let the children of Zion, rejoice in their King. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people; he adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory; let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands, to execute uh, vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. I've called this message... uh, a, a militant song of praise. What's a, a militant song? What does the word militant mean? Well, you can think of words that are similar to militant, like what? Military. Militia. Military. It's, uh, it's, it's, it has to do with warriors. Uh, and we, we make a distinction about the church, that we talk about the church on earth, as the church militant, the church still in its struggle, the church that's at war, in a way. Though we don't like to sing about that, but you, you remember singing that strange hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers? And about 10, 15, 20 years ago, they started taking it out of hymnals because it was too militant. Hmm, It was too triumphalistic as well. Uh, and we make that distinction that between the church on earth, which is the church militant, and the church in, uh, at rest, or the church triumphant, and when one of our brothers or sisters passes away, we say they transitioned from the church militant to the church triumphant in heaven. Their battle is over, their warfare is finished, and they have won the victory of God's people, God's faithful ones. This psalm is interesting in many different ways because it does have, in the last half of the psalm, it turns into a very militant psalm. It starts as a song of praise. Some of the commentaries, and I actually brought a few of the commentaries with me, the smaller ones, uh, but uh, here's a, a commentary called the Layman's Bible Commentary. It's, a re- it's an older one. Uh, older, as you can see from the cover, and it's a more modern one uh, published by InterVarsity, the commentary of Derek Kidner on the Psalms. That's a more up-to-date commentary. I just thought I'd show you how how, uh, different commentaries take this psalm and explain it somewhat differently, uh, too. Uh, It is a challenging psalm because we do not today think in these terms. How many of you think that it is part of our glory as the saints of God to uh, have the praises of God in our throats and a two-edged sword in our hands? to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all the godly ones. When you go to bed at night and you have songs of praise on your, on your mind and perhaps on your lips, are you singing praises because you get to execute judgment on the nations? See, that's, we don't talk this way. In some reason, one some one of the reasons for that is because we have become very self-conscious about being aggressive, being militant, uh, and and that has a somewhat offensive uh, uh, reception in our world today. Another reason, and this is, this is something I'm going to do this evening, and, and that is take you through a little bit of the history of interpretation. You see, as the Church has existed in the world, different influences have come upon the Church, which has, in, in, in turn, affected the way the Church looks at the Bible— I will give you an example, and it has to do in the area of eschatology. In the early church, the dominant theme or the dominant position of eschatology uh, in the apostolic church or the post-apostolic church, say after the, after the, uh, the apostles uh, died off in that latter part of the first century into the second century AD, the dominant school of thought was what we call premillennial. Um, what we would call historic pre-millennial. But in the second, third, and definitely by the fourth century, that had changed considerably. Part of the reason was a reaction against an over-literalization of Scripture and an over-emphasis on worldly victory. There was a reaction against that. There was also a, a... Philosophical position that was becoming more and more influential in the church, that, and that was a position called Neoplatonic thought. Uh, it uh, also it was an influence. That kind of thinking uh, was an influence in some of the Gnostic sects. They they held a a worldview called dualism, that the world was uh, the world or reality was divided between. The material realm and the spiritual realm, and the material realm was was inferior and sinful. The spiritual realm, the the non-material realm, was good and powerful, and so forth. And that worldview influenced the way the church read the Bible, especially in its reaction against some of the uh, some of those ancient premillennial millennial uh, teachings. Uh, I, I read. A statement, or uh, we don't have his, his works, but we have fragments of his works. An early church father named Papias. He was a student of John. He was a student of John, and he wrote this about his, his vision of the millennium. And he said, This was taught to us by those who heard the apostles. Every vine will have 10,000 branches, every branch will have 10,000 clusters. Every cluster will have ten thousand grapes, and every grape will give ten quarts of of wine that's a That was their picture of millennial blessing now I'm not sure he meant that literally, but they did take the bible literally it's by the way that that whole picture is not in the bible it is uh it but it was their imagination of the blessings the the abundant blessings of the millennial period. Uh, uh, Papias, Polycarp, these are some of the names of early church fathers, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr, they all had and emphasized a a more literal approach to understanding the Bible. But... Really, Justin Martyr, by the time he passes away from the scene, we have a reaction against that. As I said, one of the criticisms was not just that it was overly literal and overly emphasizing the physical, the physical, but that it was also rooted in ancient Jewish teachings. And the Christian church wanted to reject that. By the time we reached... Origen, who was an a early father in uh, Alexandria, Egypt. And then especially in, into the 4th century, we reach uh, the time of Augustine. And with Augustine, we have a great shift and popularization of the position we now call amillennialism. Amillennialism became the dominant view in the church largely through the influence of Augustine, but others as well. Jerome, um, uh, as I mentioned, Origen, uh, O-R-I-G-I-N, is the way you, you spell his name. Was that That emphasis came and became the dominant, and in many respects is still the dominant position in the church. But again there comes with that a slightly different emphasis and reading of Scripture. This, is a, this text that we've read tonight is a real case in point. I wanted to just take you through that little bit of the history of interpretation uh, to, to show that not everything is cut and dried, and not everything remains the same in the history of the church in the early, earlier days, uh, they were in, more inclined to take the, a passage like this to be much more literal. And they would have applied it very much to the millennial kingdom, where the saints would reign with Christ and exercise authority over the nations. And I will, I'm going to take you to some of the scripture passages that go along with this as well. With the coming of what we would say is a more spiritual, uh, spiritualized, not emphasizing, not emphasizing the material world, uh, but emphasizing the spiritual realities behind this, interpretations became much more spiritual so that all these imageries of a, uh, of a, a uh, militant, uh, <laughs> the militant saints, the militant church, uh, having a, a double-edged sword in their hands and executing vengeance and so forth, became spiritual rather than physical. Now, you can find Scripture that supports that, too. You can find, I mean, Paul, and we'll, let me let me read uh, a couple of those. Um, and now I can't find it. Oh, good. You know, I added an extra page in the hymn today, and I lost a page out of my sermon notes for tonight. So, boy, things things are not going well here. Anyway, what does Paul say about the weapons of our warfare? They are spiritual, not carnal. And when we think of swords and we think of chariots and we think of all these things, we should think of the spiritual warfare, not the physical warfare. He says we do not wage war against... Uh, pr- against kings, against, against uh, uh, people on this earth. We wage war in the spiritual realm against powers and authorities and those in, uh, in, in the spiritual places. Uh, and he says the weapons are of our warfare are not carnal weapons. He says they are spiritual weapons, and they are mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. Uh, the bible tells us not to take every unbeliever captive but they do but the bible tells does tell us to say take every thought captive every thought captive so if you were in this shift this kind of paradigm shift in the history of interpretation you certainly had scripture to support this shift but i also want to show you that it's not quite as cut and dried Let's turn to Psalm 2, and I do have this page, (laughs) Psalm 2. We've studied this psalm uh, in the not-too-distant past, but just to review, I'm I'm reading from verse 8 through verse 12, and this is God speaking to the Son. Speaking to the Son, he has just, in the previous verse said, you are my Son this day, I have begotten you. Then in verse 8 he says, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is a spiritual understanding of this passage. Christ ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, declaring that all authority is given to him in heaven and on earth. He does exercise a providential reign and rule over the world. Can you limit it to the spiritual realm? What happens when Christ returns? Well, before you you answer that question, and the the old early, early church fathers would have responded to this, there is something, a key event in biblical history that affirms the importance of the physical realm. Do you know what that event is? The resurrection. The resurrection affirms the importance of the physical realm. Our souls are saved but our bodies will be raised and the soul and the new body to be reunited this fact of the resurrection of christ as the first fruit and of the believers this fact cautions us to a completely against a completely spiritualized interpretation of scripture God created both realms, and he redeems both realms. Our problem is not whether we go one side or the other. Our problem is maintaining the right balance, the right balance. By the way, what was the image in Psalm 2? What is the imagery of the sons, the Messiah's reign over the nations. There's a particular uh, item that is named. He will rule them with what? A rod of iron. Now, what is the symbolism of a rod of iron? What does that, that term evoke in your mind? Well, it's not so much a sword. A, it is, it is a, a scepter, which is a sign of authority. But why call it a rod of iron? because there's a strictness. It is is inflexible justice, inflexible justice that the Messiah brings. Now turn to another passage in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. You see, when when Christ returns again, there's also going to be a second great affirmation of the redemption of the physical realm. Paul in Romans 8 talks about the redemption of our bodies, which is the resurrection that takes place at the time of Jesus' coming. Revelation chapter 2, it's in the letter to the church at Thyatira, verses 26 and 27. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Now, this isn't talking about Jesus, is it? This is talking about the members of the church who are being urged to be faithful, to persevere in the faith, to overcome the obstacles that are uh, uh, both outside the church and in the church. And the promise from Jesus himself Says this, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, I can't in the context completely spiritualize that. Uh, He will rule them with a a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now, Psalm 2 tells us that the Son is given uh, the, the authority to have this rod of iron and to rule over the nations, to exercise authority over the nations. In the book of Revelation, the Son, Jesus speaks to his faithful servants and said, I'm going to share that authority with you, and you too will sit on thrones, and you too will have a rod of iron with which to reign over the nations or give authority, have authority over the nations. We think of the kingdom authority of Christ almost in Completely spiritual terms, but there are passages in the Bible, Psalm one forty nine, Psalm two, Psalm Revelation two, and others that indicate there's something more to this. Something more to this. Paul has an interesting quote in First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter six. Now, wouldn't you have loved to have been a member of the Corinthian church? Whatever you can say about the Corinthian church, it was not boring. This was a church with so many challenges and problems, and Paul spends two letters uh, (laughs) uh, dealing with their many different challenges, uh, mainly in the first letter, uh, a little less in the second letter. There's actually a third Corinthians, which is not part of the New Testament canon, which we believe was written. Uh, and there's a, a third letter to the Corinthians. So apparently they needed three doses of medicine uh, to deal with the many different issues. One of the issues in the C- Corinthian church was this issue that people in the church were taking each other to court and filing lawsuits against one another in court. So you have the pagan secular courts in the, the Greco-Roman world, which were, of course, dedicated to the gods, and when you took your oath, you took an oath to the gods. When you, and they did do this, you affirmed your loyalty to Caesar, to, uh, who was, uh, of course, a, a god. The believers, in doing so, would have to, in a way, compromise their testimony. Well, that wasn't the worst thing. Paul says this, though. He says, why don't you settle this among yourselves? Don't you have it?" He almost sarcastically says, isn't there anyone? Isn't there anyone in your church that can deal with these issues, that can settle these, these disputes? Isn't there someone wise in the church who can handle this? He writes this, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Oh, wait a minute. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Where did he get that idea? Um, Maybe from Psalm 149 and Revelation 2 and so on. Psalm 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? You know, what strikes me as I read this is that Paul assumed that they knew this. And yet to us as we read it, well, huh? What? What's he talking about? I have to tell you, I'm not sure because I can't find any other place that gives me understanding and light on, on this. But Paul says, don't you know that we are to judge angels as if they knew this, and so expected them to know this? And you are to judge the world. How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? There's something more to this idea. Another passage, and this is, again comes from the latter part of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, and it is a vision of the coming from heaven of this rider on a white horse uh, who is, has a, a sash, a belt that uh, says the Word of God. We clearly identify him as uh, the Christ, But in this, here's a part of the picture, though, that portrait that John sees, that image there, or the vision that John sees. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords that vision goes on and says the dead will be food for the birds that the great people of the earth to the low people of the earth will be struck down now in keeping with a spiritual spiritual uh, interpretation of this passage one of my great heroes in church history is the uh, the former, uh, the professor of New Testament at Princeton Seminary, Old Princeton, back in the 1800s and early 1900s, Benjamin uh, Breckenridge Warfield, he writes on this passage. He writes this or interprets it this way, particularly about the sword that comes from the mouth of this rider on the horse. And he doesn't really try to interpret this as so much assume an interpretation. And I got to tell you, while he's one of my heroes, I was a little disappointed when I read his comments on this. He says this, what can this be but the preaching of the word of God? Really? Read the context. Read the context. And he says the preaching of the word of God slays the, the opposition of the nations. The preaching of the word of God will heap up the spiritual wickedness and they will be like the bodies decaying in the sunlight. The, the preaching of the word of God will accomplish this. The, the rod of iron is, is, uh, is the, uh, the victory of the kingdom over the nations of the earth spiritually and morally. He was not a pre-mill and not an ah ah-mill. He leaned more toward a post-millennial understanding. When I read his comments, I quickly, because I respected him so much, in other words, he was a a real hero of the faith and defending the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible. When when those doctrines were under attack by liberals and modernists in the church, But I couldn't believe that this was his interpretation of the passage, that the sword and the rod were symbols of the preaching of the word, because it just does not fit the context. Let me go go to our commentaries here, and I'm going to give you a a sampling a little bit. Both of these commentaries tell me that what is being depicted in Psalm 149 is a victory dance. Apparently, this psalm was written after some great military victory over the enemies of, of Israel, and they are celebrating uh, with festal uh, songs and and uh, um, a, a celebration uh, with dancing and, and instruments and, and so forth, and songs. So one commentary writes this, In this sacred dance, the warriors have their swords and probably strike them together in time with the rhythm of the music. This celebration of a recent victory has overtones of future judgment upon the nations. Okay. Israel is to execute upon the nations the judgment written. This written judgment may be the sentence recorded in the Lord's book in heaven. Uh, quoting from Isaiah 65 and Job 13, Daniel chapter 7, or the Law and the Prophets on Earth, Deuteronomy 32, Isaiah 45. and These are all passages that deal with God's judgment on various nations. In the Psalmist day, it was inevitable that the kingdom of God was envisioned by many in a nationalistic and militaristic framework. But this framework is set aside in the New Testament. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, for though we live in the world, we are not carrying on in a worldly war, and the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. That's all this commentator writes on that passage. So what he's saying is, this was appropriate, these images were were literally understood in the Old Testament, but with the coming of the New Testament, we can't understand them In the same way. Can't understand them in the same way. And again, he gives the the spiritual application. Uh, In this more modern commentary, again, the author here talks about a victory celebration, most likely after some great victory, But he calls this a celebration. Uh, The church militant is, is fighting a holy war, such as those of Israel against the Canaanites. We sing of the retribution which will overtake the enemies of God. As a nation, Israel has been charged with executing this in literal fact at her entry into the promised land. And at the last day, the angels, the armies of heaven will accompany our Lord to judgment. By contrast, the church's enemies are not flesh and blood, but spiritual hosts of wickedness, and weapons are not those of the world. He's saying pretty much the same thing. The two-edged sword that we wield is the word of God, created to destroy arguments or sophistries and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God. Our equivalent of binding kings and chains is to take every thought captive to obey Christ. The Apocalypse, that is the book of Revelation, for all its fiery imagery of final judgment, describes the church's victory as congruous with that of Calvary. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. This is the judgment written by the cross against the ruler of this world, who is the power behind the kings of verse 8. God has appointed glory for all His faithful ones at a higher level than was clearly visible in the Old Testament. Such are the battle honors of the genuinely holy war. Okay, well, how do we sort this out? Hmm. Remember, I, I I told the uh, you know the humorous observation that when we would ask our seminary professors a a, a, a question. And, and ask them to tell us the right answer, they would immediately say, well, there are good people on both sides of that question, which we always found very unsatisfactory. So I'm going to start by saying there are good people on both sides of this question. And actually, I think there is something about the balance. The balance. In By the way, they all say, oh, in Israel, this was literally... Something that they, they saw, they did, they felt. But, but there was a spiritual element to Israel's warfare, wasn't there? Did God just displace the Canaanites because he felt like displacing the Canaanites? No, he actually sent Israel in because the wickedness of the Canaanite tribes was extraordinary. And God used Israel as a means of, in a way, purifying the land. They, we think we live in the worst of times, but the ancient Canaanite people practiced certain things that we can't even discuss openly and would even shock our sensibilities. There was a spiritual element to that. It wasn't just physical warfare. Similarly, I agree, in our day and age, our battle is not against... A physical presence. It's a a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual battle. And the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not worldly. But they are powerful, and they pull down and destroy every argument that is raised up against the knowledge of God. That's how we should use that. And yes, the Bible is a sharp two-edged sword. Scripture affirms that. But there is also a physical aspect to us. We are physical people. When one of us is arrested and put in prison in a country that persecutes the believers, we have whole churches that have been arrested on Sundays when they came to worship in the country of Eritrea that have been held in shipping containers for years. And they're still praising God. But there's a physical aspect to their rejection of false teaching, a physical aspect to their torment and their resistance. There's a balance. There's a balance. I think the, the prophetic vision of the future again, affirms, especially with the concept of the, revela- of, the, of the resurrection, it is a powerful affirmation that God redeems both realms. There is a new heaven and a new earth. John sees a city coming down from heaven. It's not just a spiritual entity, it is a physical reality. The reign of Christ is not just a spiritual reign, but when the imagery of a rod of iron and a scepter and so forth are uh, to reign over the nations, the nations are physical entities with spiritual implications. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the, to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized a dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Is that entirely spiritual? Or is it a blending of the spiritual and physical? Is the resurrection that is spoken of here, the first resurrection, it's called the first resurrection, is that simply a spiritual? And by the way, this is, this is the dominant view uh, interpretation of this first resurrection that it is our spiritual resurrection when we came to know Christ as our saviors and spiritually we were raised from the dead. Does that fit the context? Is there one resurrection or two resurrections? Why call the first why call it the first resurrection if there's only one resurrection I was participating in an exam in presbytery of a young man for ordination. And I asked him, what does this mean? He says, well, the first resurrection isn't a physical resurrection. So, well, what is it? It's when we came to know Christ and spiritually we were brought to life. I said, look at the context. How did these people die? How did they die? And he couldn't answer because to read the context would immediately undermine his interpretation the context says they were beheaded because they would not worship the beast and they were brought to life so here's here's what i'm i'm leaving you with balance balance in our interpretation Do not fall into the trap of overemphasizing the physical reality at the expense of the spiritual or the spiritual at the expense of the physical. God works in both realms. He created both realms. He is redeeming both realms. Both realms are what he pronounced good on the day of creation. Second point read the scriptures for what they say and when the scriptures contradict a favored theory even it's if it's the dominant theory go with scripture go with scripture well you might be thinking well he's trying to convince us to be historic premillennialists." well if that happens all well and good i'll be even happier But if you learn to read the Scriptures clearly, compare Scripture with Scripture, the Bible is its own best interpreter. That's why I've taken you through several passages that reflect on this duality, this spiritual-physical reality, both affirming both, and affirming a, a, a reign for the saints that it cannot be simply defined as a spiritual reign. We are physical, and when we are raised from the dead, we have phys- we will have physical properties, and the world will still have physical properties. The new heavens and the new Earth will still have physical properties. And we need to affirm the importance and the goodness of both, because this is my father's world. And he loves the world that he has created. and he loves the world that he is recreating. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed give us insight, give us patience, Lord, to work through the Scriptures, to understand what the Bible actually teaches, not to simply fall in line with a, a, a theory or a view that is popular at the time. We've seen in the course of the history of the Church certain things come and go, certain emphases come and go, and we pray that you would teach us to keep our balance, to understand, and to simply persevere in the work that you have given to us, no matter what the future holds, that we might persevere and be found faithful. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.